Today on Stronger Than Reason, we talk about how U2 commodified and capitalized on the rising popularity of alternative rock with their 1991 album, Octung, Baby! Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So far, every episode of this show has been about some album that I personally love, and more so, it's been about bands that I personally love, or loved at one point in time. This episode is going to take a slightly different approach, because I can't say that I love this band. I'm not really a fan, I don't follow them, I'm not like some kind of groupie, and I haven't listened to them much, by choice at least, in the last 30 years. And Also, they're not by any stretch an alternative band, at least not in this phase of their career. And I'm talking about U2 here and one of their more controversial albums, Octung Baby, which they released in 1991, right when I was coming of age. So let's go way back to the beginning. Uh, I can't say I was a big U2 fan growing up. Uh, In the mid 80s, I had some friends who had copies of War and The Unforgettable Fire, this was before you 2 were mega stars, and they were still what you'd call post-punk then. They kind of came from the punk scene in Dublin, and then they were playing post-punk music. And yes, at that point, they were somewhat alternative, though they'd had a few hits like Bad and Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day. And my friends who were listening to those early albums were folks who had taste beyond that of the ordinary middle schooler of the time. So, when did U2 make it so big? Um, When were they permanently branded into the public consciousness? And if I had to guess, I would say that that was on or around, oh, I'm just going to throw this out there, Saturday, July 13th, 1985, because that was the day when U2 played a couple of songs at Live Aid. Now, Live Aid, for those who don't know, was the biggest musical event of the year, and probably up until that point in time. It was a benefit concert to raise funds to relieve the famine in Ethiopia, but in fact, it also relieved the flagging careers of a number of popular musicians. And it presented a young U2 to a live audience of 72,000 at Wembley Stadium, and 1.5 billion, with a B, worldwide. So you could say that it was some good exposure. And when Bono climbed down into the crowd to slow dance with a random lady, it was safe to say that U2 did the 80s equivalent of going viral. Now, I have zero memory of that event. I don't think I watched Live Aid at all, to be honest. I have a vague memory of my folks maybe having it on for a while. You know, our one giant Zenith TV in the living room that we watched. It was so full of vacuum tubes that it got really warm and the cat liked to sleep on it. Remember those days? Uh, But my mom was a huge fan of Queen, and still is. So I like to think that we watch their now legendary performance, but I, I have zero memory of it, which is sad, because it's often touted as the best live musical performance in history. And, you know, watching it now, I have to say that it was indeed pretty good. But in my defense, at that time, I was a middle schooler and I wasn't that aware of pop music beyond Duran Duran, Van Halen, and Pac-Man Fever. I hadn't even gotten into Rush yet, so that's how early this was for me. So yeah, a few friends had U2's early albums. I would have been hard-pressed in 86 or 87 to even name a U2 song. 
I didn't have any of their music. I wasn't really listening to it. I think that they first came into my consciousness in eighth grade when a friend brought the Joshua tree in on vinyl. And I remember that day we were all sitting in the gym stands waiting to get into the bus to go home. And he was like, yeah, you know, I got, I got the new U2 and we, he was all cool. And we were like, huh? Cause the rest of us had no idea who U2 even were. Uh, but suddenly this album, the Joshua tree became a billboard number one, ensuring that U2 would get forced down my throat, not only on FM radio and MTV, but in every grocery and department store, to the point where even by 1991, I had heard the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for enough for one lifetime, and really never wanted to hear it again, uh, especially because there was a sound that occurs at three minutes and 15 seconds, right after he sings Carried the Cross, that sounded exactly like the doorbell on the house I grew up in. And I cannot tell you how many times that song was on the radio And I ran down to the door thinking someone was there. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was something fun to do. And no, uh, you know, there was no one there. I finally twigged what was going on with that song. So on top of it being horrendously overplayed, it had this annoying prank built into it, which I'm positive that you two planned for. I'm sure that was intentional. So no, I wasn't a huge fan. Uh, They were more or less just part of the tapestry of pop culture at the time, kind of like Hollow Notes, but I could still recognize that they had talent. I mean, uh, you know, both U2 and Hollow Notes here. Uh, you didn't have to like U2 to see that their songs were good. They wrote good songs and you kind of had to dig some of them, like Where the Streets Have No Name and Bullet the Blue Sky. They had a good feel to them. So I, I gave them some props, but to be honest, mostly, I didn't think about them at all. So you could ask, well, were they ahead of the time and influencing tastes, or were they merely at the right place at the right time, just giving the people what they already wanted to hear? In other words, were they innovators or were they just lucky? And that's a difficult question to answer, at least at that point in time. Uh, I know that on the Joshua Tree, they made a conscious effort to write music that followed more of a pop format that was more concrete and less impressionistic. And as a result, it was more accessible. Uh, Were they doing that to grow their audience or to challenge themselves artistically? Uh, It's hard to say, you know, and did the public really want politically conscious folk rock? I think maybe the public at large just needed an antidote to the likes of Bon Jovi and Madonna and just found it in these earthy Irish neo hippies. But yeah, regardless of uh, what the motivation was, the public bought 14 million copies of this record, and clearly I bought one too. Uh, but a more telling indicator was how the public reacted to their next full length, which was Rattle and Hum. If they were truly innovators, if they were pushing the public taste instead of just riding its coattails, this album would have been a guaranteed hit. After all, you know, a public hungry for whatever it was that U2 is dishing out would just lap it up, right? Well, that didn't happen. Uh, Rattle and Hum was not so much a pure studio album as it was a weird conglomeration of live tracks and new studio tracks and a video. And the public didn't really know what to make of it. You know, a double album and a video with a lot of previously released material on it It had all these nods to American roots music that U2 hadn't really been 
inspired by, and we knew that because these guys grew up as Irish punks and they found a living in the post-punk music world. Uh, They hadn't been spinning B.B. King records as a teen uh, back in Dublin, dreaming of the American Deep South. So the whole thing was just deemed a bit self-indulgent. You know, imagine that. I know that's never been said about U2 before. Uh, So there was a bit of blowback to Rattle and Hum, a sense that maybe too much U2 was a bad thing, and the band retreated somewhat. Not that you'd notice from listening to the radio or going to a store, as I said. Uh, Meanwhile, a lot of other interesting things were happening in the music industry. There was a growing recognition of something referred to as college rock, in the sense that only really college radio stations would play it on the air. And some of these college rock bands were getting more attention. They tended to be bands that toured relentlessly. They built a following by word of mouth. They were on independent music labels like Rough Trade and SST and Factory and Discord. Bands like R.E.M., The Cure, Pixies, The Smiths, Depeche Mode, Love and Rockets, Susie and the Banshees, The Birthday Party, The Jesus and Mary Chain, New Order, The Sugar Cubes, Sonic Youth, Jane's Addiction, and on and on and on. Also, industrial rock was becoming a thing. Ministry and Skinny Puppy had begat Nine Inch Nails, which was eating up the chart. And meanwhile, the UK had its own underground electronic scene that would peak out in the so-called second summer of love with the rise of Madchester bands like the Happy Mondays, the Stone Roses, the Inspiral Carpets, and James. And shoegaze became a thing. Uh, These bands didn't care much for traditional audience interaction, hence the name. Bands like My Bloody Valentine and Slow Dive used guitar effects to just build up a huge wall of noise. Dance music culture reached a peak of sorts in the late 80s. The whole rave scene, the rise of the DJ. Suddenly you didn't have to make music to be a rock star. You just had to play someone else's music. And the fact that just every single that was put out, every promotional single, even from a rock band, had to have suddenly a half a dozen remixes by top DJs of the day. So Perfecto mixes, Shep Pettibone, Stephen Haig, Sly and Robbie, and on and on. And all of those underground influences were bubbling up and seeping into the mainstream. And in a few years, all of this would be just blasted off the table by grunge, replaced by simple three-chord rock and roll, which happens every 10, 15 years or so, kind of like shaking up the pop culture etch-a-sketch. But for a few great years there, there was a wonderful and interesting variety in play. And it would become known as alternative music. And you too, I'm sure, carefully took note of all of this. Because they were taken aback by the public dismissal of Rattle and Hum. And uh, how they were viewed as being overly serious, even pretentious. So rather than continue strumming on acoustic guitars and singing about boring things like poverty and injustice, they searched for a new direction. And to their credit they were determined to completely deconstruct themselves as a band and find some other way to put these parts back together. And to do this, they would lean heavily into the alternative sounds and culture of the day. Now, some might say that they did this in a calculated way, looking to cash in on a trend, to sell even more records than they already had, trying to appeal to an ever-wider audience. And, you know, that was probably part of it. Uh, But keep in mind, at that time... Nothing here was guaranteed. They didn't know that this would pay off. I mean, the gamble that they took with Rattle and Hum definitely did not pay off. The audience didn't go along with it. 
But oddly, instead of just going back and making uh, another version of the Joshua tree, they doubled down. They took another big gamble. And you have to kind of wonder what the thought process was there. Like maybe the thinking went, you know, we really didn't go far enough. You know, maybe Rattle and Hum was just too similar and was in fact the Joshua tree part two. What if instead of continuing as we are, we become a completely different band? And however it really went down, that's what happened. And I think it's weird, though, that they were looking for a fundamental change. Yet when they started work on Octong Baby, they brought in precisely the same production team from the Joshua Tree, the same people. So what is the definition of crazy folks? Exactly. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, Daniel Lanois was back in the main producer's seat, and he was assisted by the 70s and 80s avant-garde heavyweight Brian Eno, former member of Roxy Music, and the man who single-handedly named and popularized the genre of ambient music. Eno's job was to ensure that whatever the band came up with did not sound like U2, and you can be sure that he did this with a deck of his oblique strategies cards, patent pending, Together, these two oversaw all the recording and arrangements, and later they would bring in new ears for mixing. So there was Steve Lillywhite, who had been U2's longtime producer, and of course, Flood, whose skills were probably as in demand as Eno's at this point, having just come off Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine and Depeche Mode's Violator, not to mention lesser-known masterpieces like Knights of Reb's Showtime and albums by Pop Will Eat Itself. So even with such mega producers on board, I have to think that Flood was the one swinging the most karma at this point in time. Of these four guys, he was definitely the most relevant in 1991. Sorry, Eno, but it's true. And I don't even think Flood was around for the recording phase, but I like to think that he added a little special something in mixing to make this album even more relevant, because he was very highly attuned to what the alternative rockers of the day wanted to hear. So instead of just jumping into the Joshua Tree 2 or 3 or whatever, the band started experimenting, and they quickly worked on a lot of unusual things. They were inspired by buzzwords like trashy and throwaway, and guitarist The Edge traded his trusty delay stomp box set to the dotted eighth note for entire racks of effects, nay, an entire battleship of effects. So his jangly folk sounds were out. Now it was all about producing sheets of white noise and squealing thunder and pure Armageddon. And at first, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. were not on board with this new direction. And I've found from personal experience that a rhythm section can get a little touchy when you start bringing in the drum machines and bass synths. They get, they get a little threatened. They get a little defensive. Uh, reportedly, these initial sessions weren't productive and nearly led to fisticuffs with uh, the band members threatening to break up completely at one point. But according to legend, and by legend, of course, I mean Wikipedia, the situation was saved when the band sat down to record the song One, which is, strangely enough, the one song on this album that I just can't listen to anymore. I just can't stand it. I might have thought it was okay once, but that was before I was forced to listen to it 200,000 times up until, oh, last Friday when it was on at the Sizzler. So seriously, this has to be one of the most overplayed songs in the world, along with that 
the Mr. Jones and Me song, which always tells you when it's time to leave the grocery store, that Two Princes song by the friggin' Spin Doctors, which makes me want to put a knitting needle in my eye, and anything by Phil Collins that wasn't the drum fill from In the Air Tonight. Sorry, Phil, but it's true. So for better or worse, one saved not only the album, but U2's future, but I still can't listen to it. I also want to point out that in thinking about this episode and what I wanted to say, I never once listened to Octung Baby except for one song because 90% of this album is just permanently embedded in my brain through repetition. Uh, I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast yesterday, but I have perfect recall on most of these songs. And even just thinking about them has turned them all into incredibly annoying earworms once again. But there was one song on here that for whatever reason I could not recall at all, and I had to go back and play it. And of course I recognized it when I did that, but somehow it got erased from my memory. But I'll tell you what it was in a minute when we get to the track by track. And yeah, I'm going to do a track by track. But first I want to point out here an interesting coincidence. Uh, Octong Baby was U2's seventh studio album, and Violator was Depeche Mode's seventh studio album. And really, are these albums that different? Because they have a pretty similar sound, and they have a pretty similar look, really. Um, because Anton Corbin did the photography for both of them. So you 2 hired the same sleeve designer as Depeche Mode. And that's kind of funny, isn't it? Uh, now keep in mind that Violator came out a year and a half before Octung Baby. So that was plenty enough time for you 2 to thoroughly check out Violator and kind of figure out which way the winds were blowing. And I have no direct evidence that Violator inspired U2, but it was a pretty hot album at the time, and I have no doubt at all that it was on U2's radar. And also, though I hate to talk about grunge, we have to keep in mind that Nirvana released Nevermind in September of 91, just two months before Octung Baby. So what do you get when you mix Violator with some extra grungy, grun <laughs> extra grungy sounds? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what I do know about U2's influences at the time were those that Brian Eno related to the music press. And I quote here, Sly Stone, T-Rex, Scott Walker, My Bloody Valentine, KMFDM, The Young Gods, Alan Vega, and Al Green. <laughs> so that list is all over the place, clearly. Stylistically, it's everywhere. But I was really interested to find KMFDM on it. Uh, around this time, they had just released Naive, which more or less perfected their modern sound of the ultra-heavy beat matched with the speed metal riffs. And I also remember The Edge specifically calling out KMFDM as an influence in an MTV interview at the time, though I cannot find that thing on YouTube. Uh, but I swear it happened. But I think it's funny to imagine you two huddled around a turntable spinning godlike, saying... Yeah, this is the way. <laughs> but artwork-wise, the sleeve here is a grid of Anton Corbin's trademark gritty photos. Uh, if you uh, compare this sleeve to the one for Depeche Mode's 101 or Songs of Faith and Devotion, you will see a striking similarity. Um, there's a lot of uh, similarity there. Some of these photos are in color, though. That's about the only thing that I can say that is vastly different about it. I mean, that looks like a photo straight out of a Depeche Mode album sleeve. 
Um, but weirdly, this isn't my first copy of Octong Baby that I had. Um, my old one was in a fold-out digipack that was like falling apart, and I have no idea why I have this version from a jewel case. Um, I must have sold the old one and then bought it again. So I was pretty crazy like that. I know that over the years I've sold tons of CDs, mostly in the late 90s, because for whatever reason I needed some quick cash. Um, you know, back that was back when stores like CD Warehouse and Disco Round were everywhere, and they just kind of beckoned to you to come in and trade some money around. So it's funny to think about that now in this purely digital world we're in. I probably couldn't sell any of my CDs now if I wanted to because there's really no one buying. But anyway, let's go ahead and we'll do the track by track. I know you can barely see that text there. Uh, but this thing starts out with Zoo Station, which at first sounds quite a bit like KMFDM, I have to admit. You can al almost imagine Gunter Schultz grinding away at that guitar line. But less than a minute in, it goes through a very poppy chorus progression. And you hear Bono's wailing, and you know it's got to be U2. And the most shocking thing here next to the Edge's guitar sound was the distortion on Bono's vocals, because Al Jorgensen would have approved. Um, overall, this tune's pretty catchy. No worries after listening to this song that they're going to go pure experimental on us and forego melody entirely. This is a song that's very hummable. You can hum it well enough for someone to recognize it. Uh, the rhythm section here, I feel like it was stolen pretty much from Love and Rockets including the odd and strange percussion bits. So go listen to No Big Deal on Love and Rocket's self-titled album and tell me if you think there's a, a strong similarity here. I think you'll find there is. But this track is a statement of sorts that this was you 2 putting on the black eyeliner. They were determined to appeal to the rising tide of college-age kids who didn't tune in to the regular FM radio. Uh, Zoo Station could be your station, they were saying. So it was an eye-opener at the very least, given that the last thing these guys released was a warmed-over version of Pride in the Name of Love. So Zoo Station was a different beast entirely. So now we're intrigued, and we continue listening to track two, even better than the real thing. Now we're into straight-up dance music, Violator style, though the production is very subtle. They were careful to never let it sound too programmed. And was it programmed? Who knows? I mean, Def Leppard's Hysteria was completely programmed out the wazoo. Rick Allen didn't play a drum part on it. And the drums were all painstakingly crafted together by Mutt Lang, layering tons of drum samples on each other to give that monster sound. But when you listen back to Hysteria, it sounds like Rick Allen could have played it live. It doesn't sound synthetic. And that's the same thing here. It sounds like Larry and Adam are playing the drums and bass, but are they really? Who knows? Um, this was one of the singles, naturally, and it came with a million dance remixes. That was something new for you two, getting club play. So this uh, single had remixes by Perfecto and Apollo 440. So now we had our one-two punch. Now it's time to slow things down with one, and I'm going to skip it. And I will only say that at this point in my life, I prefer Metallica's one. So the fourth track is Until the End of the World, which is pretty much another generic dance rock track. There's a few of those on here. Um, but I have to say that all throughout this album and on this track as well, the Edge throws down some mean guitar solos. And I don't want to take anything away from the Edge here. 
because he brought the goods as a guitarist. It's all here, the texture, the melody, and the rhythm, and you can hear him stretching. Uh, there's one track we'll get to where his playing just flat out surprised me, and it was some time before I really understood what it was he was doing there, but we'll get to that in a bit. And then there's Bono, you know, on all these tracks doing his Bono thing, which is fine, I suppose, if you're not too put off by the Bono thing. And me, I was, I was okay with it, but I wasn't a huge fan. I do like some of his lyrics, if maybe not always the delivery. I think he was pretty clever on this album and would maybe be even more clever on the next album in terms of lyrics. But yeah, there were some pretty quotable lines here, though, I have to admit. But yeah, this particular tune, Until the End of the World, strikes me as being just another dance rock song. And it's kind of redundant after even better than the real thing. And that's another thing. Some of these song titles, they're just too long. I mean, no one wants to sit here for five minutes and recite a song title. One was an okay song title. So now we're going to go on to track five. Who's going to ride your wild horses? (laughs) The title is too damn long. Try harder, guys. Uh, but seriously, this song sounds like the the old-timey U2 that we knew. Uh, in my mind, it could have fit perfectly on Rattle and Hum, no problem. Really, it's just a platform for the old Bono to just tee off on some belted vocals, waving his flag around. You know, not really my cup of tea, a bit too anthemic. Though they did tap this as the fifth single, which beat Violator by one single. Violator only had four singles. Uh, Now, track six is So Cruel, which was the one that I could not remember for the life of me, which is a shame because after I went back and listened to it, I got to admit, I was pretty blown away. Uh, It's an understated slow tune based on these piano bits, and it's actually quite beautiful. I found listening to it pretty moving, and I didn't get any sense of it being ironic or tongue-in-cheek. The delivery is sincere, the melodies are compelling, the textures, the sound choices, they're all spot on, and even Bono kind of dials it back, he delivers this smooth vocal, and what can I say? I really like this song, so cruel. Well done, you too. Um, That takes us on to The Fly, which was the lead-off single. This was the one that they intended to scare away all the pop kids, as Bono called them, when he famously told MTV that the band didn't need their more lightweight fans. You know, in that moment, I have to say that I had to hand it to him because he was really putting it on the table, saying he didn't need some of his fans. And he knew that the fans would either get what they were doing here or they wouldn't. And if most wouldn't, he was okay with that. That might have spelled the end of the band. Um, that This might have been the last U2 album, strange as it is to think that. Um, but that gets into the, the fan reaction to this album, and I want to save that for later. But as far as The Fly goes as a song, it's more or less an offbeat dance tune. Uh, it's more dance rock, more distorted vocals, plenty of melodies. There's also a pretty solid guitar solo that I like. Uh, this is... I guess an enjoyable enough song to the average 90s kid. Uh, The part of the fly, though, that I like best wasn't even the song itself at all, but it's B-side, which was called Alex Descends into Hell for a Bottle of Milk Karova One. (laughs) Now, this was a mostly instrumental piece by Bono and the Edge for a live production of A Clockwork Orange, uh, which was, of course, a classic novel by Anthony Burgess and also a classic film by Stanley Kubrick. 
Uh, and I guess they made a live production of it at some point with you two involved with the soundtrack. But I always found this song to be pretty cool and experimental. It's something good to listen to in a dark room and just kind of let your mind drift. So check that out if you haven't heard it. I guarantee it sounds unlike anything else on Octung Baby, that's for sure. So then this goes into maybe their biggest hit from this album, the classic song, Mysterious Ways. And what can you say about this other than it's just the consummate 90s pop song? Uh, the single had dance remixes out the wing wing. I have to say, I like this song. I mean, who doesn't like this song? What isn't the like? Um, it was a single. They gave it the full perfecto and Apollo 440 remix treatment. Um, obviously, maybe less obviously, KMFDM, who after all were one of U2's inspirations for this record, covered this song in the late 90s on the Shut Up Kitty compilation. Uh, it's a pretty cool cover, pretty straight cover that they later made available on their Agogo compilation album. It sounds a lot like the original, except N. Esh recorded the vocals when he had a terrible head cold. So he sounds all stuffed up and even stranger than usual, which is great. But yeah, I heard this song way too many times as well, but it's okay. It's not unpleasant. I do like this song. So then we go into track nine, another one with a really long name, trying to throw your arms around the world. This one does nothing for me other than provide maybe a little dynamic range. It's a U2 ballad. It does what U2 ballads do. And then we have track 10, Ultraviolet, Light My Way, another straight-up dance rock tune, though this one would not be a single. And, you know, it's a decent enough song, but it's very much like the other dance rock songs on here. And they honestly could have cut three or four of these tunes from this album, including this one, in my opinion, or maybe made this another B-side, tightened this thing up, gotten it down to eight or nine songs instead of 12. They could have easily done that. But then we get to two of my favorite songs here, maybe after So Cruel. The first is called Acrobat. This is the first song on this CD so far that has any kind of tension to it. It's the first one that sounds uncomfortable. And the Edge's guitar reflects that very well, especially in the solo, which is pretty blistering in its own way. It's reflected in Bono's lyrics and his delivery. It's reflected in Larry's drums, which are really tribal. And there's something about that title line that I love. And it goes like this. I must be an acrobat to talk like this and act like that. That's just a well-constructed line. That's It's one that resonated with me as a confused 18-year-old. And it even resonates with me as a slightly less confused 50-something. In fact, when I think of this album, that's one of the lines that springs to mind. It's this album's catchphrase, in my mind, anyway. But yeah, this is, to me, a much more interesting tune than typically is found on this album. It's a bit darker, and the ending is pretty defiant, which I like. And this gets my award for the second best song on here after So Cruel. But then, we get to the darkest song of all, Love is Blindness. Now, I alluded to this song earlier because back in the day, its guitar tone just mystified me, especially in the lead after the second chorus, where the edge plays just a few super distorted notes. I did not get that at all. I was like, hell, you don't need to be a rock star to play that. Like, I could play that. But a friend of mine who was more sophisticated in the ways of music explained it to me 
let's call him Ted because that was pretty close to his name. He explained that the expression in this case was coming from how the notes were played, especially in how sad the notes sounded, the texture of those notes, how he muted the strings after the first few notes. And Ted went on to patiently explain that it's not always necessary to play a lot of notes or to play something that's technically difficult. What is necessary is to play whatever the song requires. And this song required exactly what the edge played right here. And, you know, he was absolutely right. And I learned something about music in that moment. Uh, Ted was a pretty smart guy. He was smarter than me in a lot of ways. And let that be a lesson, kids. Always hang out with people smarter than you. If you're the smartest one in your group, find another group. That's something my dad taught me, and he's a pretty smart guy too. So anyway, I get what The Edge is doing here. I like how it adds to the song. I guess this song was especially meaningful to him because he was going through a messy divorce at the time. He reportedly broke a bunch of guitar strings on the final solo, just getting really aggressive with it, really pouring himself into it. And you can hear that. Um, go give it another another listen. See if that comes through for you. But what a note to end this album on. <laughs> yes, it's pretty bleak. And a far contrast to you know how they would end their next album for sure. Which maybe I'll talk about someday. Uh, those who know, know. But let's talk a little about what happened when this album came out. Of course, U2's massive gamble paid off in spades. This went to number one almost immediately, and somehow they pulled off something that few acts ever managed to do, this complete reinvention. They just blew everyone's minds by showing up on MTV wearing shades and leather jackets and spangles, looking like they had just opened up an instant LA rock star kit. Now, this was meant to be ironic. Uh, because everything about the 90s was just dripping in irony. Uh, you couldn't say or do anything without making fun of it and deriding it. And just ask anyone in Generation X and they'll confirm this. So it was said that you 2 weren't really rock stars, that they were pretending, that they were making fun of the idea. Wasn't that clever? Bono's act during the concerts was just that. It was an act. And the press reported on how he was creating all these rock and roll personas like The Fly and Macfisto. And everyone just ate that up. But you know what? You two really were rock stars. <laughs> I mean, they were the most successful band on the planet at that point. So if anything, this was doubly ironic because the fantasy was in fact reality. And soon everything about U2 and its members would be bigger than life. All of that would just compound and continue to grow and maybe would culminate in the supremely overblown U2 360 tour in 2009. Yes, in 2009, nearly 20 years after Octung Baby. So think about that, that we had U2 hegemony for two decades. Uh, this 360 tour was the highest grossing tour of the year. It earned $344 million for 44 shows. And it would include not only this crazy, enormous stage setup, but also a video linked to astronauts in the International Space Station. <laughs> so yeah, Octung Baby was just the start. But going back to this record, um, personally, I had a taped copy of it, uh, at first anyway, until I wore that out. I listened to it a lot. I kind of reached my saturation point at some point there a few years later when I bought my first CD copy 
Um, most of my friends were familiar with this record, especially Ted, who really got into it. Did you two ever really lose much of their original audience? I doubt it. And if they did, Bono was right for once. They didn't really need them because this album launched you two from being mere superstars to being international megastars and arguably would keep them on top of the world for decades in terms of whatever metrics you want to use. So whether you want to talk about record sales, ticket sales, radio and TV saturation, overall revenue, action figures, serials, you name it. And of course, they would launch the legendary Zoo TV tour to promote the album. And it would challenge the world's preconceptions about U2's wardrobe and eyewear, not to mention the wisdom of running an entire TV station live before an audience of 60,000 screaming fans. And it would widely introduce audiences to the concept of modern media saturation and sensory overload. And that's a common theme today with everyone staring at screens 24-7, But you could argue that Zoo TV first brought that concept to the masses, and a lot of groups would rehash that concept in the future, pretending it was novel and cool, even though, just like The Simpsons, U2 did it first. So, personally, I suffered some pretty severe U2 burnout by, oh, 1995 or so, after their Zooropa album, and more or less stopped listening to them by choice, although they were still forced on me plenty of times, but they would go on strong without me. I guess they're still making albums. I have no idea. I know there was some debacle in the 2010s where iPhones were preloaded with one of their albums and users had no way to delete it. I thought that was kind of funny, but I never bought the iPhone 6, so I wasn't bothered by it. Um, The other effect that this album had was to further move the sounds that were previously considered alternative into the mainstream. So in other words, thanks to U2's massive success, alternative music could no longer sound like Octung Baby because U2 laid claim to that sound. So something new had to come around. And fortunately, something new was brewing in Seattle and would shortly take over the world. Rave and dance music and electronics would soon be passe, Going forward, the bleeding edge would be all about three-chord rock and roll, and as Chris Connolly put it, wearing your dad's clothes on stage. (laughs) So yes, grunge would redefine alternative in the mid-90s, ushering in the enrockification of all music that we've been discussing these past few months. So how would you two ride out that wave? It's hard for me to say, because like I said at the top, I'm not really a U2 fan. I'm just a Gen Xer, and... Like most Gen Xers, I've learned to appreciate Octung Baby for what it was. It's a pretty decent encapsulation of the alternative sounds I'd been listening to for the previous five years, served up in a slick pop format and with a fair amount of flash. So for you kids out there, this album was sort of like a YouTube rewind. And what's not to like about that? Uh, turns out I wouldn't be that into grunge either. So for me, the question of whether YouTube killed alternative was largely moot. The definition of alternative was changing, and it was still out there. It's always out there, but it was unnamed and unlabeled, just waiting for its audience to find it and declare it cool. So there you have it, kids, an episode about an album I wasn't a fan of per se, but did grow to appreciate for what it was. As someone who's not a U2 fan, I think this was a pretty interesting exercise. Maybe I should do some more episodes about albums and groups I don't like. Let me know what you think. Uh, Do you want me to pan some albums? Do you want me to give some more mixed reviews? Let me know in the comments. You've been listening to Stronger Than Reason. 
We are generally on YouTube, but you can also listen on the go as an Apple or Spotify podcast. If you feel like it, I encourage you to leave a comment or a review. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay strong.